Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts. Time for an overall. Let's go. Hope you're having a, a good day wherever this finds you and whenever this finds you. I'm always reminded that while I am recording this very early on a Saturday morning and these shows drop, for lack of a better term, on Saturdays, uh, I, I don't know when you're listening or where in the world you're listening. I'm just glad that you are. You know, there's so many choices when it comes to podcasting um, that I just am so grateful that people choose to subscribe to this podcast and listen to the stuff that comes out of my mouth and has come out for like the last five years, that's just the podcast realm. Not to mention the fact, but I will, that I've been on radio for, you know, well over 25 years now. And sometimes I turn around and look, I don't want to look too far back, but I I take a look back and I see the winding road that has kept a microphone in front of me since 1997, August of 1997. And it's a little scary. (laughs) <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't know how most of this stuff happened. One of the things I've learned a long time ago, a great friend of mine, Dan Creeley, uh, said, you know, the, one of the secrets of life, not the secret, but one of them is just to keep showing up and to keep going when everybody else peels off and, and stops. And I have a lot of people that I work with in the radio industry that uh, peeled off and went in a different direction. And that was their choice. Uh, I'm called to this, uh, for lack of a better term. It's always been my calling uh, since... Um, since those many years ago. And I tried to get away from it. And I do other things. You know, I do all this book work and I do speaking and I do this other stuff, coaching over here for, for media projects. But if nothing else, while my um, once high profile radio career may be uh, come and gone, uh, at least I have this microphone in front of me and nobody can take that away, can they? So whether these shows go on or not, that's really up to me and not to some program director somewhere because a general manager got fired and the whole staff got fired. I've been through those things. So for me, it's just it keeps calling me back and I, I make every attempt to not waste the time that I have with you, that I, that I come up with stuff that uh, A, makes it, uh, you know, the subscription you pay per month, 20 bucks, for those of you that are doing it, and I thank you, uh, worth it. You know, I mean, I break it down and I have a lot of fun with it, meaning like it's literally five bucks a, a week for to hear me for, what, a half hour, 45 minutes. And a lot of people get paid a lot of money to talk for a lot less and uh, say even less. So, um, so there's that piece. And then the other piece is that I have fun doing this. I still enjoy this. I still look forward to Saturday mornings where I get the cup of coffee. Matter of fact, a, a disclaimer and alert, I haven't had any coffee yet today. I ran out of coffee. That's unbelievable in my mind. I've been so busy doing different things and, and some of that's tied into what the show's about today, but yeah, no coffee. Usually I'm juiced up and ready to go at this point. Not so much just doing the H2O and that's not a bad thing either. I do that most mornings anyway, but it's just, it's like, where's the coffee? I can't smell it because it's not here. So the show today is tied into, uh, what happened yesterday without having coffee in front of me. I realized about 5.15, 5.30 yesterday morning, so Friday morning, um, that I hadn't gotten any coffee, as mentioned. And I thought, what am I going to do now? Okay, so think, think. I said, I take out my phone. Where's the nearest Dunkin' Donuts for me? Because I don't go to Dunkin' Donuts much. And I didn't know where they were at. And 
Luckily, there's one 1.2 miles away, a little red dot on my phone, which, by the way, has more technology on it than the lunar module did in 1969, but that's a whole other show. So I'm like, okay, and I don't even need to put shoes on for that. You know, they're open already, drive through, get a coffee, maybe something else. So I jump in the car, I zip over there, no shoes, and uh, it's all about the drive through right? So I get there, and there's nobody in line. I'm like, this is great. It's a Friday morning, there's nobody here. Well, the reason nobody was there is because it's not open yet. Are you kidding me? What says it's open on the website, it's not open. So what's plan B? Don't have a plan B. So I'm, I'm just going to wait it out. And I sat there and I started thinking about the first real job I ever had that I got a paycheck for was at Dunkin' Donuts. I don't remember how I got the job. Like I don't know it was like advertised. I couldn't tell you. But I remember meeting with the guy who owned the store and uh you know what they were looking for was a porter which is just a fancy word for janitor and the porter obviously did all the shit work and cleanup work and all these other stacking you know 40 pound bags of flour and the place was basically a mess because it's a it's a food place right? i mean there's stuff everywhere all the time so anyway, i agreed to do this uh two bucks an hour Big money back in 1970, would have been 74. And um, I couldn't wait. I thought, well, God, you know, like in 50 years, I'll be rich. But uh, so I took the job and that entailed, I believe, two or three days a week at that time, just part time. I was in high school uh, that I had to go in before high school started to do the work. So I, I think my check in time was like, uh, I'm going to say like 5 a.m., before 5 a.m., somewhere in there. So I'd be up at 3.30 in the morning, much like I am these days, probably where it all started. And I would, you know, sleepwalk basically about two, two and a half miles in all kinds of weather, backwards in the winter, right, when the snow's hitting you. And I would go in the dark uh, from my house and make a couple shortcuts. And sometimes I'd be walking past friends of mine's houses. I knew they're sleeping. Uh, but I'm out work earning two bucks an hour. So, you know, the early bird and all that stuff. So I'd get there and and uh, the first person I met on my first job day was Michelle. And Michelle was a veteran of the, you know, the cake batter war. She, but she was a, a waitress there. And she had this pink suit on and a little, little like a white apron with a little hat thing on. And, and uh, you know, she told me, here's where all the stuff's lo- located. And here's this and that. And so I would basically hide in the back room because I was so nervous about was I was doing a good job or not. Uh, but Michelle really helped me, you know, acclimate. And so I'd clean all the toilets and the floors and stack the flour and wash the windows and wash the seats and everything you can imagine about cleaning was my job. So this went on for about six months. And then finally the owner comes and says, listen, you know, do you think you'd ever want to be a baker? Uh, a baker? You mean the top of the food chain, no pun intended, at, at Dunkin' Donuts, at Mia Baker? And at that time, all the stores made their own donuts uh, up to a certain point. I think there used to be 52 varieties. I can't remember. This is before Dunkin' Munchkins even came out. And he owned two stores, and so our store made certain kind of donuts, and the other store made other kind of donuts, and we'd swap them sometimes, which is strange to me. But anyway, um, I, 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 well, yeah, I mean, I, I, what, what... What must have I had done to impress so much that I'd be offered this great leap up in six months? Well, the truth is somebody quit. They didn't have anybody else, right? So I set about being an apprentice 
for uh, one of the top bakers named Val. And Valerie was, I mean, she was something to, to behold. I mean, stuff moving left and right. And, and, and to be in the back there watching her take nothing and make something out of it was just fascinating to me. And so I learned next to Valerie for about a month, I think it was. And then one day, I mean, I learned how to crack. And I can still do it. Two, two eggs in one hand, crack, crack, and not let the shells go in the batter. Huh? Can you do that? Okay. So about a month goes by and I had finally have to take my own shift. And I was, of course, nervous as hell. And you have a list of things you have to make. You have to make X amount of these, X amount of these, X amount of these. And my favorite at the time was the actual Dunkin' Donut. It had a little handle on it. If you remember these, if you have any vintage, you'll remember the Dunkin' Donut with a little handle. It's where it all started. The whole idea was to dunk a donut. And you needed a handle to do that. So I made those and then I started making some my second favorite, which was double chocolate, what I eat to this day. And, and a matter of fact, real side note, the Dunkin' Donut, the actual handle donut, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, only in Singapore, apparently. They still make them. It's fascinating. I don't know why, but they make like three varieties in Singapore. And the reason it got phased out in the States or everywhere else in the world is because people started taking to-go coffee. Rarely would people walk in like it was when I was there and sit down and... Uh, dip your donut in a cup of coffee. Those days were changing. So people are drive-throughs and all this stuff. And it's hard to dunk a donut in the coffee while you're driving. So they literally phased those out because the clientele was changing the way that they, uh, they ordered and the way that they, you know, uh, addressed their coffee for lack of a better term. So anyway, I got pretty good at the baking thing and I just, you know, people that see me now, you know, we all have our jobs, right? Like you did what? Yeah. My first job was a baker. First, I was a janitor. Then I was a baker at Dunkin' Donuts. And I went to Schur's High School in Chicago. And for about a month after I became a baker, I realized they're throwing out donuts every eight hours. If they didn't sell, they're gone. I never knew why they just give them to a homeless shelter because I was eating them like two days later. But I would take the extra ones and put them in a couple boxes, put it in my, my backpack, and I'd walk to school, which is another mile and a half down the road. And so I had a pretty good workout in the mornings when I worked uh, before school. And I started to sell them in the lunchroom for like a quarter. So what, there's a dozen in there and a quarter. I mean, I'm going to be rich here. That lasted about a week until the lunch lady busted me, not real happy that I was competing with whatever she was serving for breakfast, which wasn't much. But I was given a cease and desist order. You can't take donuts, bring them into school and sell them for a quarter to the class. Here, Okay. I thought it was very entrepreneurial of me. Not so much, apparently. I worked there probably a year and a half. And the intersection of today's show and that first job is here. Uh, Valerie asked me to come in and take over a shift one night in 1975. So I'd been there about a year and a half, like I mentioned. And probably the summer of 75. I started in the spring of 74. So summer of 75. And um, she asked me if I'd take her shift. And I said, well, sure. I'll come in at night and bake. What, what are you doing? She says, I'm going to see this movie Jaws. And it was right down, you know, you had to zigzag through. It's right around the corner at the Portage Theater on Milwaukee Avenue. And we were like, I don't know, four blocks away at, at Dunkin' Donuts on Irving Park Road. And her and her uh, boyfriend, Kevin, who I still stay in touch with to this day, uh, they were going to see this movie called Jaws. And I said, okay, I'll take your shift on one condition. I've never had Burger King in my life. Yeah, 
So I was at McDonald's family growing up, and my dad, you know, once a month we'd be able to go there to McDonald's. It was a big deal. You know, people that so much comes easy these days. These were, for me, they were back in the day, were times where these things were a treat and they were new. You know, we just didn't go to McDonald's every day if we wanted to. We didn't, there wasn't the one we were at, didn't have a drive through. That came much later. So for me, it's kind of like, you know, once a month to go to McDonald's was a big deal, or even Roma's Beef across the street. I mean, a huge deal. When the Belding Playground would close, we'd pool our money together, walk up and get a bag of French fries. Huge deal. Now, not so much. Anyway, I said, I want Burger King because I've always eaten McDonald's and I want to know what a, a, a Whopper tastes like. So we made the deal. I'm bacon. Do my thing. A couple, three hours later, she comes back in. Her eyes are as wide as saucers. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong? And she says, I got to tell you something. She says, you know, the theater was packed. We go in and sit down. I wasn't sure what to, uh, to expect. But um, at some point, she said, I realized that, you know, I was never going to go in the water again. And I said, wait, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, what's that? What the? <laughs> I had to. Anyway, she says, I'm never going to go in the water again. I said, we live in Chicago. Doesn't matter. And the movie scared the bejesus out of her. Now, the good side was is I got a Whopper out of thing I thought it was great. I became a Burger King guy like right then and there. Yeah, Jaws, 1975. had the opportunity to meet John Williams. He did an event there and, um, well, they're not done yet. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had an opportunity to meet Mr. Williams, the maestro, and it was uh, amazing. And they did, the CSO did the Jaws theme live. The hair in the back of my neck went up. And there's something about that music and that movie that has stayed with me these past 48 years now. And so today's show is about Jaws. And the reason it is, is because tomorrow night, my highly significant other, Teresa, and I are going to see Jaws probably for me the 58th time in 48 years. And we're going downtown Chicago. The tickets are five bucks. We're going to be in an older uh, theater with the old beat up seats, probably just like it was back in the day. And it got me thinking about what the attraction is for me and millions of people. You know, there's Jaws festivals and Jaws chatbot lines and Jaws stuff everywhere. And, I, and I'm just taking a look at it almost a, a half century ago thinking, what is it that attracted me to all this? And why is it such a thing? And then it led to another piece of the puzzle. Uh, Carl Gottlieb, who basically rewrote Peter Benchley's book into a screenplay, I've had on the radio many times over the years. And I'm going to play that for you in a little bit here. It was one of the more recent uh, things that we talked about was probably two, three years ago. Uh, Carl is 85 now and still doing really well, lives in New York City. Uh, but 
the original book itself, I first was exposed to in a Reader's Digest condensed version, I believe it was, at a friend of mine's house. So there was only like 20 pages in the back of a book. So I don't know if they even make these anymore. Reader's Digest condensed books were just basically really long chapters of books. And there's going to be six, seven, eight books within one volume of the Reader's Digest uh, thing. And so I remember reading it and I was just, what, what's this about? And then when Benchley's book came out, uh, which I actually didn't read till after I watched the movie, I, to me it was a, it's a, I'm not a great fiction writer. I, I'm working on what, I don't even know if I'm great or not. I shouldn't say that because I've never written fiction for anybody else to see but me. But what Benchley did to me was, uh, as a writer myself of different genres, was to ask the most powerful question you could as an author and as someone who's creating a, a book, which is, what if? So what if leads to all kind of possibilities. So in his case, what if a really big shark who was really hungry took up residence off the coast of a fictional island uh, in the summer and uh, basically turned the surf into chow? You know, and what would play out and what would happen if you had these guys and all that stuff. So the whole what if thing is very, very powerful. The first time I saw the movie, I was with Jimmy Brinkman and Donnie Scheffler. We rode our bikes uh, up to the, I think it was the Will Rogers Theater or the Portage, one of the two, I can't remember. And that's back in the day when you can just go to the movies and stay there. You just stay there. They didn't kick you out. And so I think we saw it three or four times that first day. And then we went back for like every week for like three days a week. And it got to be an infatuation with me. I was just taken with this movie. And I think it was my early inklings that somehow you can take a story and you can bring it alive in such a way that people can't tell whether or not it's real. Now, of course, shark attacks are real. And they, they, they've happened and they will happen. The shark's been around forever. And people go in the water and that's inevitable. Uh, at the end of this uh this little uh, clip later that I'm going to play here with Carl, which is almost a half hour, but I want to play the whole thing. Um, I have a Earth Matters with Bill Curtis that I produced and wrote uh, a few years ago about sharks, so kind of a, an end note there. But, but all of this together to me has just been so fascinating. I think part of it also came up last night. We were watching Force 10 from Navarone with Harrison Ford and Robert Shaw. And Robert Shaw's character in the movie, Jaws, Quint, has just was captivating to me. That scene where he gives the uh, Indianapolis speech, which was impromptu. I believe he had a few in his snoot at the time when he taped it at three o'clock in the morning. He kind of rewrote it and redid it. Uh, should have been that in itself should have gotten an Oscar nomination just for that performance. Didn't happen. But uh, I mentioned that we watched Force Ten from Navarone, and, Cl and Quint is basically. Robert Shaw to me at this point. So whenever he speaks, I don't hear him in any other movie. And he's done some other great movies. James Bond, uh, Force 10, uh, Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Uh, I don't hear that. I hear this. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> Something about that guy's voice. He died very young, just two years after Jaws was released. Robert Shaw passed away and had a heart attack. I don't think he was even 60 years old. Lived a very, very uh, rough life by all accounts. There's some stuff on the scene that apparently that he and Richard Dreyfuss didn't get along at all. 
uh, very opposite ends of the spectrum. So Spielberg worked that into the thing that they really they had an adversarial relationship off the screen. So he had Carl write scenes that put them in conflict with each other on purpose. But then late, years later, you know, there's a clip on YouTube where Richard Dreyfus is talking about uh, to, to I believe it Robert Shaw's granddaughter on some talk show about how much he loved the guy. He actually broke down in tears. So you never know what, what you don't know. So in all of that, uh, I've been fascinated with this movie for decades. And, and so much has come out of it uh, for me personally that it's become like a rite of passage. You know, I go all the way back to 1975. Life was very different. I was just a kid. Uh, and, and this is before the, there was no such thing as a summer blockbuster then. Summertime was when they ran the old movies. You know, you go to the old, see the old Vincent Price movies or stuff that were 20 years old. This was very different. This was something that rolled out in the summer when people typically didn't go to the movies. They did a brilliant marketing campaign behind it. And the book, of course, you know, didn't hurt. And uh, it's just fascinating. So without further delay, this is a conversation I had with Carla Gottlieb the screenwriter who also played Harry Meadows in the movie, who is uh, the reporter or the newspaper owner, right? And uh, our conversation from a few years ago, then I'll come back and finish it up. Hey, Carl, John St. Augustine, good day to you. Yep, good day to you too. Boy, I've been watching everything you've ever done on uh, YouTube, video, in print, all weekend. Wow, you're better prepared than I am. No, I'm not. (laughs) You know what it is? It's 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 so enormous. I'm like, you know, it's almost not fair on one hand. Everything's been talked about and done. I'm just still fascinated, I, I think, with the emotional piece of this. Like this was a convergence of sorts. You know, there was no such thing as the summer blockbuster till this happened. You, nobody really went to the movies. You know, the old stuff was out, whatever. But that changed everything. And we were talking about the emotional connection, not just to the movie, but to that oh. year and to the time. So... It's just a, it's, it's such a huge body of work. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed as I listen to all these interviews you've done in print, like I said, or on YouTube and in the Writers Guild and all these things. You have to be surprised 45 years later that it still is like vibrant, powerful, and as much on people's minds as it was back then. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it is one of the unknowables that uh, you can never plan for iconic status, you know, or I, uh, for that kind of uh, popular success, there's no there's no preparation for it. I mean, you can you can buy an audience, you know, if you spend two hundred million dollars on a movie and then you spend another hundred million dollars on advertising it. Yeah, you can you can get the public's attention, but does anybody know the difference between you know Iron Man one and two or? <laughs> of, you know, Marvel's Avengers 6, 7, and 8. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you can't know. It's a totally different landscape. So before, I got so, so many questions for you and other things, and, and again, I thank you for taking your time. This is uh, a real treat for me. Um, I was thinking about what it must have been like for you working your way through the ranks, you know, writing for different, like the Smothers Brothers. and uh, you, I think you were working on The Odd Couple when you got the chance and the call to go start working on the Jaws script. And I'm thinking, yep. here's a guy who grows up, you know, doing what you love to do. And it's a tough business. I can't even imagine, you know, what it's like to have to churn that stuff out for the Smothers Brothers and the Odd Couple and the rest of the, all the other shows you've worked on. And then this comes along. And what was what was like the, the – was it because Spielberg asked you to do it or was it like I needed a change? What was the real crux of it? Well, um, 
all, all my life, when it comes to, you know, taking a job or, or you know, starting something, um, my first question is, have I done this before? Uh. And if I have, then I go, okay, do I want to do it again? And, I'll, you know, and, 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 you know, for example, you know, writing comedy with Steve Martin, I want to do that all the time. You know, sure, I don't ever, sure. I don't ever want to stop doing that. Um, so, um, but as a result, you know, uh, I probably could have been a, been a much richer person if I had stayed in TV and then eventually created a, got a pilot and created my own show and mm. did a show. And then I would own a piece of it forever. And it would, you know, that, that was where the big money is. Right. Uh, but, uh, uh, so, and of course, in, in 1974, um, everybody wanted to, uh, be in, in, you know, if you were in television, that way you, you were a second class citizen. Right. And the movies was, you know, movies was the shit, you know, that was, right, that right. Was, so here was a chance to do a movie. And it wasn't like a, you know speculative. You know, come on, we'll work on a script and see if we can stuff. This was a movie that was going to start shooting in three weeks. Uh, I was already in it as an actor. I knew I was going right. to be there uh, as an actor. So when they said, "Do you want to work on the script?" You know, and, and with the you know the enthusiasm of youth and the fact that Stephen and I were both you know we didn't know any better. We just said, "Yeah, sure, we can turn this script around in three <laughs> weeks. And have it ready for shooting." Well, no, but but uh, what we the process that we entered into was you know pretty intense for two three months, and you know you're we falling behind schedule and going right. over budget, and the suits were all anxious, and you know, and it, and and you know the 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 crew and the location was. Uh, was dividing. You know, there was a lot of people on the vineyard who didn't like us. They didn't. Right. They didn't want to see us there. They just wished we'd pack up our trucks and get out of there and leave them to their sure. expensive little enclave, which it was. You know, it's always been an exclusive kind of an East Coast place. So half the island, you know, was who, who needs these people, and the other half of the island, which was making a living off of us and a good one because a movie company. Mm-hmm. Spends a lot of money on the local economy. They were saying, "No, no, they're fine. Let them stay." <laughs> it's a, it's okay. a. Well, I was just going to say real quick because, and I'm going to be inserting here, and and unfortunately, you know, I have so many questions for you that came right out of the book you wrote, the Jaws Log. And, yeah. And I walked around with that goddamn book in my pocket for two years at high school. I wasn't paying attention in class. I'm reading the Jaws Log over and over and over again. And just as you were talking about the local economy and those type of things, I was thinking about the pubs did real well, the restaurants did real well. Didn't the the uh, the studio actually rent a house for you and Stephen to work out of, which was a bit unusual? It was, but that was Stephen's idea. He, he had uh, he had just finished uh, Sugarland Express, which was uh, on location in Texas, and he realized you know, a lot of time is wasted. You know, you finish shooting, you come in. You watch the dailies, you take a shower, you go, well, where are we going to eat? You, you know, you go, then you go someplace for dinner. 
you know, half the time you eat in the hotel. Sometimes you go out. I mean, right. it's, it's, he said, if, if I, if they rent me a house and a housekeeper, uh, that's a lot of time saved. Right. And it's a house. So there's, you know, there's like four bedrooms. It was, a, it was a, uh, you know, it was a rental property that was sure. rented every summer to summer people. Um, and it, it came with a really good housekeeper, the wonderful Francis. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it made a lot of sense. So we were essentially, you know, roommates. Rick Fields was an uh, apprentice editor and Stephen's personal assistant and took care of the dog. And Rick slept in the attic, and I had a real bedroom with a, with my own with a bathroom. Nice. And Stephen had the same thing. So you know, at seven in the morning or seven thirty, whenever the call was, you know, we'd meet at the breakfast table. We'd talk about what the work was going to be, what was you know what was shooting that day, what was coming up, what was what needed to be addressed. And if I was in the scene or if I was on set that day, you know, I'd get in the car with him and we'd go and we'd spend the day on the set. He'd be directing, of course. Mm-hmm. And then we'd get home and, and go you know, go to Daly's and then go back to the house for dinner. And, and uh, almost, uh, Verna was there almost every night. Right. So we would talk about what we had done so far, what was left to be done, and how every time we made a change, it affected the whole tapestry. You know, you pull on a thread here and something comes undone somewhere across the room. Mm -hmm. So you have to carry the whole film in your head. Hmm. And normally on a movie, nobody, nobody, you know, the director, uh, the producer, the script supervisor, and the editor are the only people who have to know what the whole movie, everybody else just shows up and says, where do I stand? What do I say? Right. What What props do you need? You know, do we need to paint this blue or red, or can we leave it the way it is? You know, the, the, you know those questions are easy to answer, and the, the hard, the hard stuff is the story. You know, and and uh, we were able to concentrate on that to the exclusion of everything else, and as a result, hmm. we pruned away all the excess detail and all the extraneous material from the novel, and got it down to a simple, you know, men against the sea story. Right. right. And so was it really, it had to be difficult for you and Stephen, and you especially, to start carving away. Because in the book, I can basically tell you what Harry Meadows was eating for lunch when the shark attack victim paperwork showed up, right? He was yeah. eating meatball sandwich, oozing sauce and all this stuff. So you were cast as Harry Meadows, but then you literally had to start cutting your own self out of the out of the movie. I mean, that in itself was a chore, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, I, yes, because when I took it, you know, it's funny in the release print and in the first, you know, VHS version of the movie. If you look at the main titles, I get equal billing with Lorraine Gary and Murray Hamilton. Is that right? You know, yeah. Oh wow! Because that was that was how big the part was. Yeah. So if you look at the release print or the first, you know, the earliest versions, you yeah. know, it says Richard uh, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Shaw in Jaws. With Carl Gottlieb, Murray Hamilton, and Lorraine Gary. Oh, man. And then, you know, and as the years went by and they kept reissuing it, changing it, you know, yeah. gradually, you know, lost my, my stature in the credits. But on the other hand, there I was on the main titles as a screenwriter, so that was fine. 
I suppose there's got to be some satisfaction knowing that you were part of arguably one of the greatest movies in film history. There's got to be a little satisfaction in that. A lot of satisfaction, but it, it's, it's, you know, when Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it was a job. You know, the, you yeah. know, he didn't, the Pope would kill him. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, you, you, you actually don't think about that. Uh, you know, when, when you're making even popular art, never mind great, you know, sure. quote, fine art, uh, when you're doing art, you just try, you, you're basically just trying to solve the problem at hand. You're trying, you know, you're trying to do, you know, like how <clears throat> I'm going to carve the statue of David. And, but I have to figure out how the marble at the base will support the torso and the head because they weigh a lot and they'll, they'll crack the marble if unless you know, I figure out the right shape for it. Mm-hmm. But I, as a fan of the movie and, and, and became a fan really of, of sharks and conservation because of the movie, uh, I found that, that just the most fascinating um, accounting of what, not only what it takes to make the movie, which none of you could have possibly known was going to do what it did, but also the, the trials and tribulations that the actors go through with the characters and the difficulties of things that, you know, the delays in production. I remember reading like, you know, Roy Scheider had already wrapped up his part. He had to go do some other movie. He had to come back and reshoot things. And, you know, it, it was just really a fascinating glimpse. Behind, and I couldn't think of any other book that had gone so deep into what it takes to pull a film off like this. Well, I, had a, I, I was actually working from a model... Uh, which was a book by Lillian Hellman hmm. called Picture. And it just, she got to, uh, <clears throat> she was a fly on the wall when John Huston was making Red Badge of Courage uh. with, Audie, with Audie Murphy. And she wrote a three-parter in The New Yorker, which became a book called Picture. Hmm. And I read that as a kid. Hmm. And it was one of those things that a few a few books that you read as you have as a young person that kind of shape your life mm-hmm. and you go, oh, you know this is kind of what I want to do. <laughs> I, I, you probably heard me say this in a dozen podcasts. <clears throat> the best advice my father ever gave me as a dad to a young man was, you know, do what you want to do. Don't get trapped in a dead-end job like I did because I had a family to support, and it was the Great Depression, and I didn't have a choice. Was he around? Was your pop around to see some of your success, Carl? Yes. Oh, yeah, my, one of my, uh, he was still alive when uh, we won the Emmy. No way. That's so great. I was, I was, you know, he, he got to see me win the Emmy. I don't think he saw – I don't think he lived for – to see Jaws. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, uh, in 1975, was there any, when the finished film's done, you know, everybody else has left and they're still editing the film and everybody's moved on to other projects. When it first w- was apparent that this was something really, really special, when the reviews came in, when the box office came in, when it opened on June 20th, back in 1975 at a bunch of theaters, this was an unknown charted territory. Uh, back then, because most of the big movies, I think, came out around Christmas. Do you remember how you felt when you figured, you know, you found out that this is this is something really different? 
unless you're a Kardashian. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, 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 it's it's kind of what you live for, and if you yeah. when 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 it comes, you know, part of you says, you know, it's about damn time I deserve this. Yeah, and then and part of you says, how did this happen? What what did we do right this time that we didn't do right the other time? Yeah, what you yeah. and you know, with television, you could kind of figure, out, okay, it's time, you know, your time slot and your competition. How much do they spend on promotion? And the same thing with movies: are they going to give it a big release or a slow release? And with Jaws, you know, it was a big gamble on the studio's part to release it in four hundred theaters because nobody had ever done that before. Right, right. See, they had, but not. There was a bit of a template in, in, in place. I forget, I, I, I read an article about it decades ago by somebody who was uh, trying to point out that it, Jaws, when they opened in 400 screens, it wasn't totally crazy. There, was, there were precedents oh, for okay. that. Uh, most, mostly with horror films in local situations. Right. Guys with, with you know, like a... Uh, a horror film or an action film would make 20 prints and then saturate south, south of the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And then they would pick up them prints and move on to, you know, the Northeast or right, wherever. Right. You know, you're breaking new ground. I mean, it's, it's what you hope would happen. And then mm -hmm. when it happens, you know, you're, there's nothing you can do about it. It's not be gracious and, and right. uh, you know, Say yes, thank you. I planned it all along this way. <laughs> you know, speaking of of uh, people and and success and and how that works for them and different actors and stuff like that, I know that there were uh, other actors that were uh, either up for roles or considered or being thought about for the roles, like Charlton Heston to be Chief Brody. Which you know, oh, oh, okay, maybe I could kind of see that, but then everybody thinks he's you know Moses, and that ain't going to work. And I know that there was, you know, I think Dreyfus was a was a given. He had done work uh, with Duddy Kravitz and some other things, and and uh, so that was right there. But the, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that what Robert Shaw did in that character. When I read the book, I could see him as you know. I was like, wow. When I was reading the book, they this is the guy I read about a year ago. And what an actor he was, and a playwright, and a poet, and oh my gosh, and of course the Indianapolis scene that was all... There was only one other man who could have done what he did. Who's that? Sterling Hayden. Ah, Sterling Hayden. Why well, had not thought... Now, is that in the book? Isn't it in your Jaws log? You told why he couldn't do it, right? Yeah. I, you know, he was... Because, you know, three weeks... When I signed on to the movie, Shire was the only actor who was set. Okay. I had to help get Dreyfus because Dreyfus had already passed on the script. Right. And, uh, and we were desperate for, for a, uh, for Quint. Mm. And we got Shaw because basically he owed, uh, Zanuck and Brown a favor for putting him in the sting. Ah. And they prevailed on him. And he had the richest deal of all the actors. He had a great deal. Really? Oh, yeah. He had penalties because he had a, if he worked more than 90 days in the U.S. on a work visa, he would have had to pay taxes both in the U.S. and in the U.K. Uh -huh. And yeah, it was a huge issue. And I think I made a mention this in the book a couple of times. In order to save him his work days, 
as, as soon as he would have three or four days off in a row, they would ship him off across the border to Canada <laughs> uh, and get him out of the country so that he could, but then that became a futile, it became obvious that he was going to go over. Right. He had protections into his contract. He said, you know, pay me $300,000, but if, if I have to pay another $100,000 in taxes, yeah. you pay me another $150,000 to cover that. That's right. Wow. So he, he made out like a bandit. Yeah. Uh, and because he was Robert Shaw, yeah. he, he just got on with it. I'll tell you what, you know, as you're talking, and, and again, the Jaws log is downstairs in my lower level on a shelf, and I, I, I looked at it the other day, and there's a bunch of books around it and stuff. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of the things you wrote about that time, and that you, I remember you writing about Shaw that you thought he was like the, the the best Bond villain of all time. That really looked like he could have busted up Sean Connery, you know, and right. and, and 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 to get that guy to become this guy with the sideburns and the hat and the you all know me and that whole that thing. That's quite a transformation. He must have been quite a guy to be around for a while. He was, and it was very interesting. He had the, you know, he had a couple of things that were that that he did, you know, that didn't register with anybody. That thing with the toothpick in his mouth, yeah. and, and the crackers, the crackers. Called, <laughs> uh, Robert's idea was he'd be like a shark. He'd be eating all the time. His jaws uh, would. That was his. Subliminal contribution as an actor. He said, "Okay, uh, as an actor, what do I need to be doing? Well, I need to be chewing all the time. I need I need teeth. Hmm. Uh, great moments, you know, when, when he takes out his front tooth in, in the Minneapolis <laughs> yep. thing. Uh, that was completely unplanned. His tooth came loose. No kidding. Yeah, and my my wife Allison, who was visiting the set that day, you know, went." On land, or she she ran the errand to go to the drugstore and get some dental cement, so that he could put his tooth <laughs> in, finish the, the the week's work, until he could get to a dentist. So, but but while it was coming out, while it was loose, he you know pulled it out to make a point. Wow, you and know, and that is like a truly selfless act. Is you, yeah. you know you won't catch a Kardashian showing you her stretch marks. No, no, but. Trust me, they're there. There's been two things, and I think about it all the time. And I think about the convergence of all your talent there on the on the island and everything that was created. That the fact that 45 years later, it's it's still you know I mean Shark Week, the whole thing, everything that eventually created it. It's this giant. It's almost a shark in itself. And when you think back on it now, what was the most difficult and the most let me say not not the worst, but maybe the most difficult part of everything you all pulled off, and what was the most satisfying? I'm stuck for an answer on the difficult part because it wasn't like any other job I've ever had. Uh, I've, I've had jobs like it afterwards. I'm Jaws two and three, and right, and right, right. Those were all you know fix fix it jobs, uh, uh, you know fix it during production jobs, but. Uh, uh, so, so at the time it was just hard, you know. I mean, I had to, mm-hmm. had to keep a lot of balls in the air and and satisfy the producers and satisfy Stephen and satisfy Verna, satisfy myself. You know, uh, so 
it was it was a, a difficult job, but it wasn't onerous. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was it was fun. I was doing what I signed up to do, which was creating popular entertainment. Mm-hmm. And you did. that was that was like my job in life. Mm-hmm. So the downside, yeah, I missed L.A. I missed hanging out with my wife. I missed you know yeah. You know, but but that, you know that's that's part of going on location. I mean that that's you know. Right. And in the end, you're making a movie. What's you know, the the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> if somebody's bored and goes, "That wasn't very good." Right. You no, know, nope, nobody <laughs> dies. Nobody, you know, nobody. Right. Nobody's life changes. You know, the good. pressure's off in that regard. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Ernie Ernie Layman tells a story. Uh, he was working for Hitchcock doing North by Northwest. And he was agonizing, and they were going to lose Cary Grant, and they had to get the the, the chase sequence finished with the airplane. And, mm-hmm. and Ernie Lehman, who was scribbling away, broke out in hives. He had like you know, yeah. had hives, and the, you know he was, he was drinking. And Hitchcock said, "Ernie, Ernie, it's only a movie." <laughs> Hitchcock said that. Yeah, Hitchcock said it's only a movie. <laughs> so wow. Hitchcock. If Hitchcock thinks it's only a movie, who am I? You know, exactly. Differently. The one, there's, yeah. there's been one scene for 45 years that I've been trying to figure out. This is this, the strangest trivia, and I don't know why this stuck in my head. You remember the scene, obviously you do because you wrote the thing, where Hooper shows up for dinner with Brody. And yes. It, right? And they're sitting there, and he brings two bottles of wine. I didn't know whether to bring red or white, and he sits down, and they're eating dinner, Right. Right. What were they eating for dinner? Do you have any idea? I've been trying to guess. It looks like a fish. looks like a pork chop. Scallops. It's bugged me for 45 years. Any answers on that? No, because it was prop food. Yeah. And now I'm generalizing from experience, but prop food has to be easily digested. It can't be something you have to chew a lot. It's not real food. It's prop food. real food because you can the actors act while they're eating and uh so it's usually you know like scrambled eggs with some food dye in it to make it look dark Uh, you know so it's it's and and it's something that can't spoil if it's left out all you know right right eight eight hour shooting day yeah or you have to keep making it uh uh prop men hate food scenes because they gotta have a little kitchen just off the set where they're constantly reheating or, you know, right, right. rebuilding the dinner for the next take, you know. So I, I should, wish I could. Yeah, I was going to say, it, so I should just leave that shit alone, not worry about whether it was a pizza. I'm thinking, what the hell's on that plate? For 45 years, Carl. That's, that's yeah, not right. That's it, was, not, yeah. it was prop food, is all I can tell you. <laughs> and the last thing I want to tell you is, I've been in so many meetings, and I've been in radio 25 years now, and I've been in meetings, and I would say things in the meetings that are lines from Jaws, and there was one that I would use all the time, and anybody in their 20s and 30s had no idea what I was talking about. This is probably five, six, seven years ago. And I was in a couple of meetings, and I realized I said it. And what I was asking my, my uh, production assistants to do was get a hold of somebody that I knew uh, because I, I needed something from them. And I would say, call Dave Axelrod in New York and tell him I need a favor. <laughs> and, and, and they're like, who, what? And I and I didn't catch it right away, and so I've, I've used that. So you know, you may not have the big poster credits and all the rest of this stuff, but somewhere you got to know there's a guy going. Tell Dave Axelrod he owes me a favor. You're not forgotten. <laughs> Dave Axelrod, 
There you go. There you go. Carl, he still, is he we still were there? Friends. He was friends. We were friends in college. Uh, you know, I, he's one of, one of my best friends. I used to see him every time I was in New York. And, and I was, you know, kind of winging that scene. I was improvising it as we went because I had to have that sense of yeah. urgency. In the, so I was improvising. And his name came to my lips and I threw it out there. Are you kidding? That's how mm-hmm. that happened? Yep. Oh, that's great. That's even better. I, mean, I just, you know, I was trying to think of something else to say besides, you know, stand <laughs> together, you know, short yeah. guys up front, you know, like yeah, nice, yeah. Just, whatever I was saying then was all improvised. Wow. The moment. And uh, Stephen and his genius, you know, had the mics working and was shooting it, you know, live sound and uh, <laughs> wound up in the final cut. That's fantastic. As, there's a lot of great lines in there, obviously, but for some reason, watching you trying to get all those fishermen together in front of that dead tiger shark that was stinking up the dock and saying, call Dave Axelrod, New York, and tell him I need a favor. is like, oh, that's, I get that. I got to tell you, I, I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate your time. I know you get a jillion questions. I'm sure every summer everybody wants a piece of, you know, what you have to say about the movie. Uh, the interaction between Hooper and Quint is is priceless. And, and, and you know, what, what, uh, what Roy Scheider did with Brody was incredible. And, you know, the, the mayor, the whole thing, it's just, it, it, it was like, to me, it's like, it's like you said, what we talked about with David, it's like a work of art. It's a piece of art. So listen, I really appreciate it. I'll, I will stay in touch and I just wish you all the best. I really appreciate your time today. Unbelievable. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Finally, to wrap this up and I appreciate you spending time today and go out and watch the movie or, it, or you know, it's not hard to find up. AMC is probably going to run the crap out of it all month. Um, the, the, just the cinematic value alone for me is amazing. What it took to shoot that film on the water, uh, they went way over budget and way over time. You know, they over Amity is Martha's Vineyard, so they took that over, and it was just the first time anybody had ever done anything like that. When the Spielberg was given the nod to be the director, he thought that he could go find somebody that would, you know, like a shark trainer to get the sharks to act like a porpoise or something. Uh, they don't play that game. So that's when Bruce the Shark was built. Bruce is named uh, after Spielberg's lawyer at the time. So that's what, because the shark didn't work much and it costs a lot, just like a lawyer. So there was three sharks. There was the full shark to the left and the right side. And the salt water was always corroding all the inner workings and making it very, very difficult for the thing to work. The whole concept of that John Williams music really becoming like the sharks on its way, like dun, 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 dun. Everybody knows what that is, right? Dun, 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 dun. Um, because the shark didn't work. They, the shark should have been in the picture a lot more than it was, but because it didn't work, Spielberg thought it might be as effective, if not more, and he was right, that you didn't see it, that you, you wondered where it was at. And that music, mm-hmm. I mean, it's all it takes. You do that now to people that are of a certain age, we get it. Uh, however, conversely, somebody under the age of, I'm going to say like 40, maybe 35, maybe 30, uh, I have people say, it's ridiculous. It's not scary. Well, back then it was. No one had ever seen this before. Much like me having a Whopper with cheese uh, that I'd never had before. It was amazing. So there was no such thing as summer blockbusters. Now we had one. And no one had ever seen a movie like this about sharks. And the, the, the performances of Roy Scheider and uh, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus across the board, and Carl Gottlieb, and everybody in that movie, it just, it all worked. 
So while it's a movie about a shark, it's really to me more of a movie about relationships and tragedy and what and how people react. You know, like you know the guy that uh, played the the mayor, right? And you know he's just denying it all the way through. That's kind of accurate until this swims up and bites you in the ass. You know you're not going to do anything about it. So there's so much in this movie for me. Uh, I really enjoy it, and over the years I've gotten to enjoy it more and more uh, about the, the 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 acting and the connections that these characters had to what was going on around them than the actual shark stuff itself. It's just uh, just really well done. I'm gushing here, so I got to stop. Anyway, I want to leave you with this. Um, there's quite a few good things actually came out of the Jaws movie real quick. Uh, right after it happened and the movie came out, people were killing great white sharks in record numbers because of the movie, which is what humans do, right? We're going to eradicate this species, so on the off chance I'm swimming somewhere, I won't get eaten, which is total ridiculous. Uh, but I will tell you, my friend Tom, my dad's friend Tom, had a built-in pool uh, 12 feet deep in his backyard, and there was a light in there. And at night, when we go swimming in 1975 and 76, and that light was on, forget it. I'm not going in there. It's a swimming pool in a guy's backyard, a big concrete pool. During the day, no problem. Turn that light on, not going in. Not going to do it. It's either the creature for the Black Lagoons in there or Jaws is coming, one or the other. Anyway, uh, people started eradicating great white sharks and all sharks. And Benchley came out and said, stop. He said in some ways he wished he never wrote the book, which is saying a lot because of what happened with sharks after that. So Benchley became the shark conservation guy, a leader, in the, and his wife still continues the work to this day. Benchley passed away many years ago. And shark scientists, the whole Shark Week thing, all that came out of Jaws. Uh, the conservation effort is a direct result of what happened after Jaws, and that is a very, very good thing. Anyway. Here's Bill Curtis with The Earth Matters. Uh, I appreciate you spending time with me today. Hope you enjoyed the show. And just remember, you're going to need a bigger boat. They are among the oldest animals on Earth and have the reputation for being one of the deadliest. But when it comes to sharks, man is the predator. Recently, a 1,323-pound mako shark was caught off the coast of California, the largest shark to be caught on a rod and reel. Each year... Approximately 100 million sharks are taken from the sea, mostly for their fins. The act of finning is a brutal practice that uses only the fins, cut off while the shark is alive, and then the fish is dumped overboard, where it slowly sinks and suffocates. Removing that many sharks from the food chain can have dire consequences in the long term. These magnificent creatures have been on Earth for over 300 million years, but now their fate is uncertain. I'm Bill Curtis with Earth Matters.